Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and uh, Eric, right out of the gate on the Showtime broadcast on Saturday night, Mauro Ranallo used T2 to describe Charlo Castaño too. And I have to say, that's great. We're all one big Showtime family here, but Mo, my friend, back off. Combining discussions of media sequels and rematches, that's our leg, dude. Seriously. Uh, plus, he, he's kind of behind the times. You know, T2 was the go-to example two weeks ago, but that's as right. we explained, The Dark Knight has replaced it as the new go-to example. So try, try to keep up, Mo. Uh, but honestly, he can steal our bits if he wants, but he should know that we're going to steal his. Mama Mia, this is a close encounter of the podcasting kind, wouldn't you say, Kieran? It doesn't feel so good now, does it, Mel? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's move on to the next stanza of this podcast, <laughs> yes, shall we? let's do that. <laughs> this week on the podcast, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of a stretch of six consecutive weeks with live boxing on Showtime or Showtime pay-per-view. So we, of course, have major Showtime fights to both review and preview. We'll also cover the news, including some surprisingly low pay-per-view numbers for Canelo Alvarez. We'll play a game of Make the Match, and I'll reveal Eric's next top five chance. Challenge. But the main focus is on the Showtime cards. Uh, shortly, we'll offer our preview and predictions for the May 28th pay-per-view from Brooklyn, headlined by big punchers and big personalities, Javante Tank Davis versus Raleigh Romero. But we start with analysis of what went down in Glendale, Arizona on Saturday night, where the undefeated super middleweight rising star, David Benavidez, gave the hometown crowd exactly what they came to see. Yep, uh, it was fun while it lasted, but it didn't last long as Benavidez moved to 26-0 with 23 KOs, extending his KO streak to six in a row by stopping the game but overmatched veteran power puncher David Lemieux in the third round. Lemieux, now 43-5 and with 36 KOs, started well. He was jabbing his way in, scoring to the body, but in the final seconds of the opening round, Benavidez hurt him with a left hook and it was as good as over at that point. The bell saved Lemieux, just as referee Harvey Dock was about to stop it, but the punishment kept coming in round two, Benavidez scoring a knockdown with a jab, prompting Dock to tell Lemieux he had a short leash. Lemieux was bloodied by the end of the round, and his trainer told him, if you get in trouble again, I'm going to stop it. And indeed, they threw in the towel at 131 of the third round after Benavidez landed a flush left-right combination. Benavidez, uh, dubbed the Mexican monster by none other than Mike Tyson, put up scary CompuBox numbers, landing 58 of 111 power punches, that's 52%, and even landing 16 of 40 jabs, an extraordinary 40%. Kieran, we both picked Benavidez to stop Lemieux in the second half of the fight, so he exceeded our expectations. What stood out to you in Benavidez's performance? And this is a guy who has dominated good opposition, but the pound-for-pound pound buzz hasn't really started yet. Should that buzz be starting now? I'm not sure about pound-for-pound, pound, but someone who is well and truly ensconced on that list was certainly impressed. Uh, Errol Spence wins Tweet of the Week with hmm. a pithy, Benavidez, a bad MF. <laughs> 
pound for pound is tough because there are so many people jockeying for a place on that list right now. You know, outside of the likes of Canelo and Spence and Terence Crawford and Oye and Oye, there's Shakur Stevenson who's probably got himself on that list now. There's there's still, you know, Vasily Lomachenko. And if Lomachenko is on it, should George Cambosis be? And should Tyson Fury be on it? Or Alexander Usyk? Um, what about Estrada and Chocolatito? Gennady Golovkin should feel aggrieved to not be on it uh, if Canelo has until recently been at the top. What about Dmitry Bivol? So there's a lot of competition there. Mm. Um, you know, has the quality, you know, you mentioned he's been beating up good competition, and he has, David Benavides. Some of these other guys have been beaten exceptional opposition. Yeah. So uh, has that quality of opposition been enough to force himself onto that level? I'm not sure, but it was certainly a first-rate performance. Um, you know, like you, like you said, I think we both expected something similar to how it all played out but for it to be played out over a longer period of time i think breadman pretty much called it last week I, I, as i recall he basically expected benavides to steamroller lemieux um i know that benavides was in camp a very very long time for this fight and, and, and given that you know sometimes focus and weight issues have been a bit of a factor uh you know he's lost his title twice and neither occasion in the ring um you know maybe they suggest that if he can find the focus and the discipline to do that um, he's going to be able to take it up a, a further level. Um, he's still, I mean, I love watching David Benavides, but he's such an, he's such an unusual fighter. I, mean, I could just picture like some of these old timers watching him and bemoaning his footwork, you know, the way he just kind of seems to walk forward, flat footed, more or less squares up to his opponents, but it works for him. Um, and yeah, on one level, he just basically beats people up. He's got that unique combination of size and punch output that enables him to walk guys down and beat up on them. But there is more to it than that. He's got a good punch selection. He's smart about what he throws and when. Um, his punches are, are targeted. They're not just thrown with abandon. Um, you know, if a guy, if he's throwing, trying to land hooks or, or overhand rights and the guy's got the muffs up, he'll switch the body punches or, or uppercuts. He, he knows what he's doing in there. And as you noted even if it isn't immediately obvious, his jab can be a really effective weapon. Mm -hmm. um, his defense is actually very good, um, which is one reason why he's able to sort of simply walk down his opponents and stand more or less in front of them. He's just, he's just a unique fighter. Yeah. And, and he's, a, he's a confounding challenge and, and indeed a very painful challenge for so far for anyone, you know, who steps into the ring with him. So, you know, he's, if he's not on the pound-for-pound pound list yet, he's certainly making a very strong name for himself. And I think the question is, and we'll talk about this later, you know, when and if he's going to be able to, to get the kind of opportunities to, to face the really big names that would help put him onto that list. Um, all of that said, as, as for Saturday night, we did pick him to win by KO. And it, even though it was a very impressive performance, it was against an opponent who, you know, was, has been a very good fighter with a very good career, has always, almost always, fallen short against the very top echelon fighters and really isn't a super middleweight. But look, you can only beat the man in front of you. Right. And and Benavides did that with extreme effectiveness. Um, but that does raise the question, I think, where do these fighters go from here, Eric? Is this the end of the road now for David Lemieux? And and as I mentioned, you know, Benavides has been struggling to get any of the top guys at or around 168 to fight him. Does a performance like Saturday night change that or does it actually put him more in maybe this kind of situation that Breadman says that Boots Ennis is in he's presenting too much risk to the other stars in this weight class hmm. uh well taking the the Lemieux question first um 
No, I don't think it's the end of the road, but I think this result underscores what we already have known for the past few years, that he's finished as a fighter who can win at the top level. Um, but, you know, is he finished, period? I don't think so. Um, you were just talking about what makes Benavidez such a special and unique fighter, you know, in terms of his weapons and, and the different ways and distances from which he can hurt you. He's just not indicative of how Lemieux would do against the B-level mm. super middleweights. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, if he decided to retire now, I wouldn't object. But he did enough things well in this fight and showed a ton of heart. I, I didn't see a used-up fighter in there. I saw more just an overmatched fighter. Um, now, the trickier question, you know, what does the path forward look like for Benavidez? I know he wants Canelo. Everyone wants Canelo. Uh, we'll talk about Canelo in the news segment, but suffice to say, Benavidez isn't getting a Canelo fight this year. But mm. there are other fights that make sense for him, fights that can make sense for the potential opponents also, fights that would represent a step up for Benavidez relative to who he's fought so far. You know, you were talking about the the pound for pound I think we both see that there's potential pound-for-pound pound talent there, but the resume clearly is not pound-for-pound pound worthy yet. Uh, I mean, his best opponent so far might be Anthony Durrell. Um, mm. So, you know, there are fights out there that represent a step up from Durrell, even if they aren't huge money pay-per-view headliners. Um, there's a lot of talk about 24-year-old Cuban southpaw David Morell, who fights Calvin Henderson on Showtime in two weeks. That would be a good fight. Caleb Plant is a quality test that should be makeable. I think a, a catchweight fight against Zerto Ramirez could be excellent. Mm. He's not going to get Canelo. He's probably not going to convince Jamal Charlo to move up in weight and face him. But if Benavidez and his people accept that they need a win or two against the best non-superstars at or around 168 pounds, I think that's the path for now. And perhaps mm -hmm. the mega fight can follow in a year or two. And I think Benavidez knows that in terms of him not being able to get the very biggest fights right now. You know, when Jim Gray asked him that question, he said, I'm waiting for them to send me the contract. Them bitches know what's up. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's trying to talk his way into the huge fight, but I think he knows he's going to have to grind it out and, and fight his mm. way into the huge fight. Mm. All right, so let's talk about the co-feature. In the 154-pound division, we got our first look on Showtime at Cuban prospect Yoelvis Gomez. And relative to our predictions, this one went the opposite way that Benavidez Lemieux went. We both expected Gomez to stop veteran Jorge Cota in the first half of the fight. But while he did hurt Cota for a moment in round three, he never knocked him down, never came all that close to stopping him, and ended up winning a shutout decision, all three judges scoring at 100-90. to 90. Gomez, uh, taken beyond the third round for the first time, moves to 6-0 with 5 KOs, while Coda drops to 30-6 with 27 knockouts. Kieran, what did you learn about Gomez here? Do you think he could still be a high upside prospect, or did I overhype him last week in predicting a KO2 and, and big things ahead for him? I think it's just far too early to say. I will say, though, that had you asked me that question around round seven or so, I would probably have been somewhat more negative than positive. Mm. You know, after setting off 
like a steam train over the first few rounds. He definitely began to slow down uh, in those middle rounds and, and did begin to look a tad bereft of, of ideas around then as Coda sort of attempted somewhat to pick him apart on the counter. I, I actually agree with Steve Farhood's card and that I gave Coda the sixth and seventh. But mm. I also noted the same thing that Al Bernstein observed at fight at end. Like through rounds... Uh, like rounds eight through 10 were much, much more impressive for Gomez because he made an adjustment. He took a step back, took a deep breath, stopped trying to just blast Coda out of there, settled into jabbing and boxing his way to a win. So, you know, whereas with a lot of young boxers who knock their early opponents out cold, but then fall apart when they come up against other opponents who can take their punches and hit back, he showed he's got extra levels to his game, which I guess isn't surprising given his background and right. schooling. So so that's promising. And I was struck also by how remarkably chill he was at every point, from the moment he first made it into the ring to the final bell, to, to the way he was just kind of like very relaxed in the corner. And look, if you're that relaxed, then even if you haven't gone 10 rounds before, you're giving yourself a good chance of being able to do so, right. you know, relatively comfortably. Um, Coda was not good. Um, he looks like a veteran who has well and truly seen his best days, you know, for all his protestations that he felt insulted by the level of opposition that he spent most of the time fighting to survive, especially toward the end. Although he did say afterward that he thought uh, Gomez may have, broken his rib and i don't want to imagine how i'd react to even laying on the sofa if i had a broken rib so so coda does credit there and yeah look sure so so gomez's early career knockout streak has ended but he went 10 rounds against a veteran who only lost to the people of the caliber of charlo and fundora and lubin and he did that in his sixth pro bout so there is clearly promise and talent there and exactly how much we'll, we'll just have to wait and see Oh, that's very uh, reasonable and level-headed of you. Well, I thought so. I've, once a year, I try to be. Okay. So there you go. Um, you, you've used it up for this year. It, that's it. We're good now. Uh, the opening bout was far and away the most competitive on the card. A 10-rounder between undefeated featherweights, 22-year-old Luis the Twist Nunez, and 18-year-old Jonathan Fierro. An entertaining action fight uh, with the Southpaw Fierro trying to land big straight left hands and right hooks. Nunez looking to make him pay. With counter right hands, uh, neither managed to badly hurt the other. It went the 10-round distance with all three judges scoring at 96-94 in favor of Nunez, which I think was right. Uh, so Nunez is now 17-0 with 12 KOs, while Fierro dips to 13-1 with 12 KOs. Eric, what do you think of both fighters here? And, and how interested are you, and honestly, both the winner and the loser as prospects going forward? So th this fight basically came down to... Fierro was a little too raw and rough around mm -hmm. the edges, and Nunez was a little too calm and poised. You know, one guy being 22 years old and having been tested a bit, and the other guy being 18 and not tested prior to this, that really seemed to be the difference in what was a close fight. I had it 96-94 like the judges did. I thought Nunez very clearly won, but not by much. It was it was either a 6-4 to four or 7-3 to three fight. Fierro was this aggressive southpaw. He showed a lot of spunk. He wanted to make a fight of it. And Nunez didn't panic. He stood his ground. He was relaxed. And he was just a little bit slicker. And Fierro got sloppier as the fight wore on. He had some wild misses, you know, punches that mm -hmm. sailed a full foot over Nunez's head. Um, but Fierro finished strong. He won the 10th round to make the fight look a little closer. I think while this was a little too much too soon for him and it puts the first loss on his record, it's a fight that should make him better. Um, you know, it, it's okay to pick up an L at age 18. The yeah. fight 
won't have damaged him physically. This is 100% a guy that Gordon Hall should bring back to main event a showbox card very soon. He's exciting. He's gutsy. And I like that he was crying as he made his way back yes. to the locker room. This is a young man who cares. He, uh, he yes. tasted defeat, and I guess he didn't like the way it tasted. Um, I don't know if he has the skills to be a great fighter, but he's definitely a young fighter I want to see more of. And Nunez, kind of the same story with him as in his previous fights. Yeah. You know, some good notes. He has skills. He has some power. He's solid all around. But there's nothing electric about him. Um you know, usually the more you see of a guy, the more you figure out about him. But Nunez, we've seen him plenty now. We keep getting more information, and none of it moves me off the fence as to how far he's going to go. He's still on that fence, or at least I'm still on the fence about him. Yeah. So that nunez Fierro result created the only movement in our picks competition, uh, as I had Nunez by unanimous decision and you went with split decision. So I got three points to your two. We each got one point for Yoelvis Gomez's win, and we each got two for Benavidez by KO. So I creep ever so slightly closer. <laughs> you lead now 39 to 34. I'm tempted to bust out an Angelo Dundee. You're blowing it, son. But um, it's only May, and I am still the one who's five points behind. So maybe now is not the time for me to start talking trash. It's the middle rounds where I'm just taking a breather and a reset before finishing you off over the second half before blowing it in the second half <laughs> we shall see okay um there were a few other notable results in non-showtime fights this weekend uh on friday in plant city florida a mild upset as 39 year old former champion jean pascal handed china's fan long meng his first loss by close unanimous 12 round decision at the o2 arena in london on saturday undefeated light heavyweight joshua buatzi captured a close unanimous decision of his own over craig richards winning an entertaining 12 rounder by scores of 116-112 and 115-113 twice. Uh, two fights of note on an ESPN card from Las Vegas. Unbeaten middleweight Janabek Alim Kanuli dispatched Danny Dignum in two rounds while lightweight Jermaine Ortiz won a crossroads clash with Jamel Herring by unanimous decision, prompting the 36-year-old Herring to announce his retirement on social media afterward. And lastly, the rescheduled Floyd Mayweather Don Moore exhibition took place on Saturday. There was no official result. It went the distance with the 45-year-old Mayweather in control the whole way. Uh, Eric, I'm not sure what you watched and what you didn't. Anything you want to comment on there? I didn't watch Mayweather more. Saw about 20 seconds of it on Twitter. That was plenty. Uh, I have no insights to offer there. I did watch the Boazzi fight. I was generally impressed. He, he's going places, and I might have to accept that I simply haven't been giving Craig Richards enough respect. He's, mm. um, he's just a bit of a late bloomer, but he's certainly currently a quality fighter. Couldn't tell much about Alim Kanoli. That was fairly useless matchmaking, although yeah. he did what he was supposed to do, just like what you said about Benavidez. You can only fight the guy in front of you. You can't knock him, certainly. I took care of business uh, quickly and easily. The main fighter I want to comment on is Jamel Herring. Um, first off, credit to Jermaine Ortiz. We saw him beat Nahir Albright on Showbox three months ago. This was another very good win for him. He's coming along. Jamel Herring, you know... It can happen quickly in boxing. Yes. Uh, one minute you're scoring a career best win over Carl Frampton and you earn the big fight against Shakur Stevenson. You're hitting a career peak in your mid 30s and then you lose two fights in a row and it's over. Um, it doesn't mean Herring is all used up and, and couldn't still beat some decent fighters. I actually found it a little uncomfortable the way Mark Kriegel was writing his career obituary as we interviewed him afterward. 
But Herring has quickly gone from losing to one level of opponent to losing to a mm. different level of opponent. Mm. It reminds me a little, this is going back almost 25 years, because I'm old, uh, but it reminds me of Gabrielis. Um, he lost to Arturo Gatti in 1997. Great fight. Some called it the fight of the year. Ruelas got stopped, but he was still a world-class fighter on that night. Two fights later, he's getting absolutely dominated and stopped by John Brown. And he fought on for a few more years, but he was done at that point. Yeah. It, it happened suddenly. And same here with Herring. He looked good at 34, 35, not so good at 36. And if he does indeed retire and stay retired, good for him. Uh, it would appear he's getting out right before things actually get bad for him. And if this is the end, he deserves congratulations on a very good career and on being a person in this sport about whom nobody ever had a bad word to say. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's turn our attention to this coming Saturday at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York, a four-fight Showtime pay-per-view card. And the main event is, on paper, everything you'd want a headliner to be. Two fighters with a combined record of 40-0, and 36 knockouts. One is 27 years old. The other is 26. It's lightweight belt holder Javante Tank Davis, 26-0 and with 24 KOs. Main eventing is fourth straight pay-per-view against challenger Rolando Raleigh Romero, 14-0 and with 12 knockouts. They both have big personalities. Davis has a huge following, routinely drawing about 15,000 fans to his fights. As I said, on paper... It has a lot of what a promoter or a network dream of, but there are two catches. It's not a pick em matchup. Romero is listed as about a plus 750 underdog at the sports books, and both guys are fighting under a cloud of legal trouble. Davis facing separate charges of battery and of hit and run. Romero not charged, but accused of sexual assault. There's a lot going on here. Uh, Kieran, let me get your take on Tank Davis. Coming off his tough, close fight against Isak Cruz that ended a 16-fight KO streak, what does he have at stake here, reputation-wise? And what do you make of his star power? Can, mm. can you pinpoint why Javante is a major draw who can headline pay-per-views while so many other excellent fighters of his generation lag behind on that front? So I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of reputational risk for Davis as as long as he wins, um, okay. at least with fans. I, I don't even think it matters too much if he doesn't win by devastating knockout. Again, as long as he wins, again, at least from the perspective of fans, he didn't suffer at all, I think, from being taken a distance by Cruz, and nor do I think he should have done, partly because Cruz had built his own reputation and partly because Davis was dominating until he injured his left hand. Well, there may be an issue, reputationally speaking, if he does struggle, is in terms of, of media perception. And to take us back to that conversation we were having earlier, the issue of pound for pound, you know, it's, it is mighty close and intense these days. Um, Davis is very much in that conversation. But if he struggles with an opponent like Romero, who, as you mentioned, he's not widely considered a legitimate threat, at least by the odds makers, then there could be an opening for a negative narrative. You know, it's you know how narratives kind of like bubble away and, and then they, you know, they get going and it's hard to shift them. And 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 there's there's there is for as much as Tank has been getting a lot of praise, and I think deservedly so. For the run that he's been on, there is that kind of counter narrative that, you know, when you look at his string of pay-per-view fights, 
it's, it took him 12 rounds to stop an aging, smaller Uriorkis Gamboa who fought a lot of the fight with an Achilles tear. Yeah, he had a win over Leo Santa Cruz, but again, that was a smaller guy. Um, it points win over Isak Cruz, another smaller guy. And then if he struggles with Romero, you know, maybe there's enough there for people to build a narrative that uh, maybe he's not quite as good as he seems to be. Um, I, I don't think I would agree with that going into the Romero fight. I think he's a very, very skilled and exciting fighter. But, you know, I could see I can see it happening. Um, that said, that's a question of how much that would bother him as long as he keeps, you know, packing the crowds in and winning. And it really is a phenomenon, just how popular he is. I think I might have even expressed previously that it's perhaps surprising to me that he's the one who's risen as high as he has in terms of popularity. You know, it's, he isn't the most electric of interviews, for one thing. Um, he has his legal issues, as you mentioned, but he's a really amenable fellow, as you and I have found out, you know, mm. and he's very willing to promote his own fights. And I think one of the key elements is those fights are almost always exciting. When was Javante Davis in a boring fight? Right. It, you've got to really think hard to think about it. You know, he, he quite rightly, he plays up his Baltimore roots and, and, and PBC have been smart to fight him a lot on the East Coast. Um but even when he fights in L.A., he's able to pack the crowds in. Um, it certainly didn't hurt him. Um, in fact, I'm sure it helped him immensely that as he was becoming established during that period, Floyd Mayweather took him under his wing and pushed him almost as his successor, if right. you will. Um, that relationship seems to have broken down a little now, at least on the promotional front, although everybody's you know, still being very cordial. Um, but I'm, that, I feel like that was a relationship that worked well for all involved you know floyd managing to get some kind of reflected glory from young tank davis and tank you know obviously being somewhat anointed and and perhaps inheriting some of those mayweather fans that all said i think his continued popularity from here with or without floyd in his metaphorical corner is all on tank um but that all assumes tank wins uh one way or the other um if he loses to Romero, then obviously I think all bets are off. And, and I guess the question is, how likely is he to do that? Uh, you mentioned the odds on this fight. Part of the reason that Tank is such a big favorite is a huge gap in experience and quality of opposition. While Davis has held titles at three weights, and like I said, fought the likes of Leo Santa Cruz, Gamboa, Mario Barrios, Jose Pedraza, Romero has had just 14 fights as a pro, hasn't held a major title. His best win was probably that KO7 over Anthony Yigit last July. Eric, without giving away your pick just yet, what does the case look like for why Romero can pull off the upset, or at least why he can push Davis in a tough fight? I think there's a pretty decent case, actually. And uh, my analysis will mostly be about Romero, but I will start with one note about Tank Davis. As good as he is, he's far from unbeatable, and you could make a case that he lost that last fight against Isak Cruz. Uh, so so we'll start there, that he's not up against uh, the, the guy that, you, you know, you just uh, noted that he kind of came up on this guy's undercards. He's not up against Floyd Mayweather here in terms of the sort of unbeatability factor. Um, but focusing on Romero, you know, we were very vocal after he fought fellow unbeaten Jackson Mourinez in the bubble in 2020 yeah. that he got a gift decision. And it's been my instinct to be down on Raleigh since then, but maybe he just had one bad night. You know, he'd had COVID prior to the fight. It was weird for everyone fighting without crowds. It's easy to explain away an off night. And, I mean, he was knocking out everyone leading up to that. He scored two dominant knockout wins since then against Avery Sparrow and Anthony Iggett, stopping them both in the seventh round. 
So maybe that wasn't the real Romero against Mourinho's. Mm. Another reason to believe in him is that he has excelled so far against Southpaws. He's 3-0, and three knockouts, and he claims he likes fighting lefties more than righties. Also, he can pop. Uh, you know, Javante's faced some good opposition. You listed some of them, but Isak Cruz, not a knockout artist. Mario Barrios, though much larger, isn't really a puncher. Leo Santa Cruz, definitely not a puncher. Pedraza, not a puncher. Gamboa used to be a puncher, but not really by the time he fought Tank. I'll give you Ricardo Nunez. That's the one puncher on Davis's resume, but Tank knocked him out in two rounds, got it over with before his chin could get tested. So Tank Davis, you know, he's never been knocked down as a pro. He might have a great chin, but we really don't know. And it's possible that Romero is the biggest puncher he's faced. And lastly, the, the final case for Raleigh is that Raleigh sure as hell believes in Raleigh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's a cocky guy. He's been calling out Javante Davis for a while. Maybe it's bluster and he's just been trying to get the payday, but I don't think so. I think he thinks he's going to win. In an interview with TMZ, uh, he said, and uh, language warning here, uh, he said, Tank's going to get knocked the fuck out and whoever believes otherwise can go fuck themselves. Uh, Now, we're not doing our picks yet, so I won't reveal yet whether or not I can go fuck myself, but (laughs) it does seem Raleigh Romero has the right mindset for a plus 750 underdog. He's carrying himself like he's the favorite. Um, Okay, so uh, before we start making our picks and predictions and revealing whether either of us earns a a go fuck yourself from Raleigh Romero, (laughs) uh, let's touch on the undercard. Three fights and... One of them features a pair of veteran middleweights that fight fans are well familiar with. 39-year-old Aris Landy Lara, 28-3-3 with 16 KOs, fights on Showtime for the 11th time in his outstanding career. He meets Gary Spike O'Sullivan of Ireland, 37 years old, 31-4 with 21 knockouts. Also in a scheduled 10-rounder at 154 pounds, 21-year-old prospect Jesus Ramos of Casa Grande, Arizona, puts his perfect record of 18-0 with 15 KOs on the line against Garden Grove, California's Lucas Santamaria, who is 24 years old and sports a record of 13-2-1 with 7 KOs. And opening the show, it's the latest chapter in the Mexico versus Puerto Rico rivalry at 130 pounds. Familiar face, Eduardo Zerdito Ramirez of Mexico, 26-2-3, 12 KOs, 1-0 no contest. He takes on Luis Melendez from Miami by way of Puerto Rico, 17 and 1, 13 KOs. He's won 15 in a row since a split decision loss in his third pro fight. Kieran, which fight or fighter on this undercard most has your attention? I'll be honest, I have a bit of a soft spot for Spike O'Sullivan. Um, mm. I, I, I've interviewed him before and I found him an engaging guy. And, and he's really something of a polymath. He's been at various points in his life a movie stuntman, a butcher, an arborist, a trainee pilot. And of course, with that mustache, he looks as if he should be a strongman in a Victorian yes. carnival or something. Um, that said, whether he belongs in a pay-per-view co-main event is a different matter. Um, almost every time he stepped up to top world level, he's lost uh, on points to Billy Joe Sanders by stoppage to Chris Eubank Jr., David Lemieux, Jaime Munguia. I guess the intrigue in this bout as a contest is never being entirely sure what Lara has left and which Lara will show up. Mm. Will it be the guy who blew out... Thomas LaManna and was in the 2019, I think, fight of the year with Jarrett Hurd? Or will it be that boxer who has shown up 
so many times before that frustrating skillful but but uh unexciting guy um O'Sullivan says he fares much better against opponents who counter him than he does against boxers even though two of his losses have been to Lemieux and, and Munguia who are nobody's idea of fleet-footed defensively minded boxers um be interesting to see how he fares against a veteran who's shown signs of being a little bit of both in recent years but who I assume will initially attempt to adopt more of a boxer's mentality before sort of stepping forward and into his punches as the fight goes on and his old man legs tire. Um, there's not a tremendous amount of at stake in the greater scheme of things here, although an alphabet belt is on the line. Nor can I argue convincingly that it's going to be the most exciting or tremendously high quality contest, but there is that little bit of interest and intrigue, I think, in terms of two veteran guys with contrasting styles and they're both looking to finish their careers strongly. So so th- I guess that would be my pick. What about you? Uh, well, before I get to my pick, I'll just say, I think you would look okay with the Spike O'Sullivan mustache. <laughs> I think you could pull that off if you wanted to go that route. Have you ever thought about it? I don't think there's anything I can do, mustache or otherwise, to make me look like a Victorian-era strongman, though. But thank you. All right. Just, you know, I want you to think about it and maybe give it a try someday. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. So, as for this undercard, I'm really looking forward to seeing Jesus Ramos in action. Yep. He appears to be the standout prospect on this undercard in terms of upside. And boy, if you like a good storyline coming into a fight, this one's tough to beat. Um, On February 5th on the Keith Thurman, Mario Barrios undercard, Ramos fought on that show. He stopped Vladimir Hernandez in six rounds. Luke Santamaria also fought on that show. And he scored an upset 10-round decision win over one Abel Ramos, Jesus Ramos's uncle. Uh, Santa Maria was a late replacement for Josecito Lopez, and he won a decision, although it was a controversial decision. Our friend Keith Idek wrote that the scores, when they were read, were something of a surprise to most in attendance. Um, Abel Ramos did hurt Santa Maria several times. So the revenge factor is strong for Jesus Ramos trying to avenge his uncle's loss that they think was a robbery. Um, Also, Santa Maria has some serious motivation as his first son is due on May 28th, the day of the fight. Uh, (laughs) That can be a distraction, of course, but it can also focus you, you know, knowing you don't want the the sacrifice of potentially missing your child's birth to be in vain. of course, it's it's Ramos that really has my eye here. He He's a talented prospect. He's a southpaw. He's a puncher. Look up his 2019 KO of Ricky Edwards. Yep. Um, you might want to mute YouTube. Um, it's some of the more egregious screaming by the duo oh gosh, of yes, Ray Flores and Ray Mancini. I think, uh, I think I might be stealing this phrase from Brian Campbell, but I, I believe he called it a, a double Ray-gasm, uh, that one. But um, <laughs> put it on mute. And watch the left hand that plants Edwards on his face. Impressive stuff. Anyway, Ramos appears to be the goods. His last several opponents had records of 13 and 4, 19 and 1, 22 and 3, 24 and 2, 14 and 4, 14 and 0, 16 and 1. So he's not being babied, uh, and he sparred with the likes of Terence Crawford. So I'm really looking forward to seeing him against Luke Santa Maria. Yeah. All right, let's get to the picks, and it's my turn to pick first. Uh, We'll work our way up the cards. That means I start with Eduardo Ramirez versus Luis Melendez. And the first thing I'll say is that I think we have a fun style matchup here. Um, You know, I was talking last week about how Kevin Gonzalez versus Emmanuel Rivera was a perfect way to open a show. We had another good one this week with Nunez Fierro. This could follow in those footsteps. Ramirez, better puncher than his record suggests. Not much in the way of defense. He's a southpaw, but he doesn't fight in any stereotypical southpaw ways. 
Melendez, pretty raw, straightforward, looks for the knockout. Melendez does have a clear size advantage here, and he's a fast starter. 11 of his 13 KOs have come in the first two rounds. If he's going to win this fight, it'll be by catching Ramirez early. I think for Ramirez, the plan is to get through the first three or four rounds, and then Melendez's inexperienced figures to show. Ramirez is a pretty clear winner pick for me. The question is how. I'm going to say Melendez toughs it out and lasts the full 10. I'll go Ramirez by unanimous decision. Yeah. um, I I think one of the issues here for me is, you know, how much do records tell the truth and how much do they lie? I mean, you talked about, you know, Melendez's, you know, knockout ratio. Um, There's a a little bit of an issue, I think, with his his quality of opposition. Um, You know, I think only four of those KOs that he scored have been against foes of winning records. He, He fought eight times last year seven times in Colombia, six of those against 30 guys who are 36 years old or, or older, mm. and they averaged 24 losses. Um, Ramirez, meanwhile, you know, he's gone 12 rounds with Lee LB, albeit in a contest for which he weighed a considerable amount over, recently won a decision of Emmanuel Mariaga. This sort of been knocking on the door of a title shot for some time. I agree with you. Uh, that it's a case of getting through those first few rounds just to be on the safe side. And then I would not be at all surprised to see Ramirez take it over, perhaps even relatively comfortably by the end and to win a wide unanimous decision as well. All right. Um, I, like yourself, am really quite looking forward to Jesus Ramos against Luke Santa Maria. Uh, and that's largely because uh, because of Ramos. Um, I think he's the clear A side here. He is the prospect who is being moved along smartly and and slowly. That said, uh, Luke Santa Maria is, is a live, if not super lively dog here. Look, wins against Michael Fox and the remnants of Devin Alexander shows that he's no mug. Um, and, you know, and as you discussed earlier, there's that controversial win over Ramos's uncle uh, to give this some extra spice. This is a step up for Ramos. Um, Santa Maria is perhaps the toughest opponent on paper he's faced so far, but I, I do think he's got a bit too much quality here, uh, Ramos. And add to that the fact that Santa Maria is stepping up in weight for this contest, plans on dropping back down again. Um, the other thing is, look, Santa Maria deserves credit for, for some of those recent wins, even if, you know, one or two are, have looked a little uncertain. But Ramos looks to me a very, very good prospect. Uh, um, you know, he, he to use a word that I, that I used earlier with Yoelis Gomez, he looks very relaxed in the ring. He's comfortable under pressure. Um, he's got very good upper body movement. He rolls with punches. He's intelligent. And holy crap, he's got some power in that left hand of his. You mentioned the Ricky Edwards uh, knockout, which was spectacular. And I thought it was all the more so for it. It just seemed effortless. It wasn't even like he'd super talked into that punch. He just just threw it. It was a nice short punch and just took him out. Mm-hmm. You know, Santa Maria's trainer was asking whether Ramos can fight back him up. And A, based on his outing against Vladimir Hernandez, yes. And B, uh, Santa Maria, I don't think he's going to back him up. That's just not who he is. I, I think Santa Maria will box and move and try to pick up points. Ramos will stalk. He'll hit him to the body. He'll bring down uh, Santa Maria's hands, which I think already start too low, to be honest. I think at some point... He'll just produce a left hand seemingly out of nowhere, Ramos, that will drop and stop Santa Maria. I say Ramos, KO9. All right. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty high on Ramos, as you are. I think unless he fights emotionally, trying to avenge his Mm -hmm. uncle's controversial defeat and makes a mistake, I don't see too much chance of Santa Maria winning, even though, as you said, Santa Maria is no stranger to pulling off upsets. Uh, You listed some of the ones he's already achieved. Yeah, Ramos is a fairly easy winner pick for me, and 
like the first fight, I, I struggled a little bit trying to decide how he's going to win. Santa Maria has never been KO'd. He's only been knocked down once. So we have a little bit of swing here. I'm uh, staying consistent as far as predicting a long night for myself. I'm going with another 10-round <laughs> distance fight with Ramos winning a lopsided unanimous decision. Okay. Uh, next up, Arislandi Lara versus Spike O'Sullivan. And when I first heard about this fight being added to the card, my initial instinct was to say it was a mismatch in Lara's favor. But, you know, you brought up the fact that we don't always know which Lara we're going to get. If he's mm -hmm. the more flat-footed Lara we've seen the last few years, if he's trading punches instead of fighting on his toes and moving a little and getting in and out, I could see Spike O'Sullivan having a little bit of a chance here. If Lara stands and trades, we could see Spike catch him with something. And, you know, Lara suddenly looks a full 39 years old. I think the upset is possible, but I can't pick it. Uh, more likely, Lara gives the fans a few exciting exchanges, but mostly boxes smart and avoids danger. And eventually he lures O'Sullivan into something and hurts him. But I'm going to say it goes some rounds. I'm going to go with Lara by stoppage in the eighth. Okay. Um, I had a bit more than I expected to say about Ramos Santa Maria, largely because I really like Jesus Ramos as a prospect. Um, but even though I highlighted Lara O'Sullivan earlier, I have somewhat less to say about okay. it as a contest. Um, I suspect Lara will box when he's able, will stand more flat-footed when he has to, which I think will probably happen at some stage, and that perhaps will enable Spike O'Sullivan to close the gap a little bit. But I still think even at 39... Lara will have too much skill and hand speed for Spike. Uh, O'Sullivan will put forward a really good effort, but I just feel like he'll keep being slightly the second best in exchanges. Um, when he does land cleanly, I do expect Lara to be able to hit him cleanly back. Um, I think this will actually go 12. Mm. I'm going to say a unanimous decision win for Lara. And by about halfway through it, the crowd might start getting a wee bit bored and frustrated mm. and calling for the main event. Um, talking of which yes. uh, I do in contrast think Davis Romero will be exciting um, I don't think it will go the distance uh, for all that I think it will be fun I do believe that one of the two combatants is superior to the other that you talked about this already Romero is strong he can hit like a damn mule but while I certainly acknowledge your point that Davis perhaps hasn't been up against a puncher quite like Rolly Romero, indications are that he seems to have a very good chin. I also think he's got a greatly underrated defense, Davis. Uh, and, you know, he might be able to hit just as hard as Romero, or at least not far off it. It seems to me that Davis is a better boxer, a better jabber, better defensively. I think his ring IQ is higher. Uh, and he'd like Romero, he can also hit. Look. We have been guilty of underestimating Romero before, as you mentioned. Um, but I just don't think he's on Tank's level here. I, I think both men will be relatively cautious early. It's going to be one of those fights where they respect each other's power and ability. Um, Davis perhaps using the jab to try and keep Romero at, at bay. It'll be one of those fights where periodically over the first few rounds, generally toward the end of the round, some kind of a fight will threaten to break out and it won't quite but it'll be enough to get people excited. And then by around round four or so, then the fight will definitely be breaking out as they as they get their distance right, as they, they each start to get a feel of the other. Um, I see, and you know, in that second quarter of the contest, I think Davis will start stepping forward. Romero will have his moments too. I think what's going to happen is we're going to get to a point where it really does just uh, turn into a straight all-out fight. And I think here that Davis's shorter punches and 
better defense will make a difference here. I see a situation where maybe Romero stings Davis, starts to unload, his punches are too wide, Davis lands an uppercut down the middle as a counter, and that'll be all she wrote. Davis knocking out Raleigh Romero in the seventh. Oh boy, Karen, uh, you're not picking Raleigh Romero to win. You can go F yourself. Indeed so, sir. And so can I, because uh, I'm not picking him either. Um, that said, I can see this fight going all sorts of different ways. Um, we all know that Tank Davis can end a fight in the first round or two. That's possible here. Um, I could also see Romero's awkwardness serving him well and him getting a lot of good work done and winning some rounds and taking Tank deep and either getting stopped late like Mario Barrios or maybe losing a competitive decision. I mean... Tank Davis, when he fights a fellow fresh young fighter, so in other words, not Gamboa, not Santa Cruz, more like Barrios or Isaac mm-hmm. Cruz, he's generally found himself in some tough fights. So I could absolutely see Raleigh making this difficult, and Raleigh does know how to fight southpaws, but I cannot make the upset pick. If I had to bet it straight up, I would much sooner bet Raleigh at plus 750 than... Mm you know, lay like $130 to win $10 or whatever it is exactly on Davis. But since we are making picks without odds, Javante Davis is my pick. I think it's going to be a close fight for a while. I think maybe it goes a little deeper than where you have it ending in the seventh. I think maybe we get to like round 10 or so and Tank is up maybe six to four, seven to three. He's ahead. It's getting into those late rounds and we start to settle in for thinking, all right, uh, maybe maybe Tank's going to go the distance again here and win a decision, and then, boom, Tank hurts him from out of nowhere. I, too, am taking Tank Davis by KO, but a little later than you. I'm going to say Javante Davis, KO 11. Okay, then. All right. Um, let's return now to our occasional segment, Make the Match, in which one of us names a boxer, and the other comes up with an ideal match, or perhaps two ideal matches. One that would make sense as a matchmaker, and one that you'd want to see as a fan. And this week, we visit the light heavyweight division. 175 pounds is pretty hot right now, mm-hmm. uh, courtesy largely of Dimitri Bivol. But also, you know, there's that expectation and excitement surrounding Joe Smith Jr., Artur Bedebiev. Um And there's some movement happening below that top level as well, as prospects and contenders begin to make their move. And we've already talked about one of them. Joshua Buatzi, who defeated local rival Craig Richards at the O2 Arena on Saturday. I think there's a bit of a sense that the 2016 Olympic bronze medalist maybe hasn't moved quite as rapidly as a professional as might have been hoped, certainly when compared to, say, one of the silver medalists from that from that class, Shakur Stevenson. But after that win on Saturday, now is the time to see if he can indeed swim in the deep end of the pool. So, Eric, usual rules apply. Best move for Bawatsi next as a matchmaker and as a fan. All right. So one interesting thing to point out here is that he's 29 years old. Um, Not old by any means, but not young, especially when you haven't really stepped up yet other than maybe this most recent win against Craig Richards being his first step up to sort of the fringes of the world-class level. Um, So I do think there's maybe a little bit of urgency here. I don't, I'm not interested in a lateral step, I guess, let's say. Let's, okay. I, I'm looking for someone a little bit above Craig Richards uh, for his next step, whether as a fan or if I'm guiding his career. So I do think with these uh, British fighters, it makes sense, given that there's enough depth of British talent in these divisions, it makes sense to match him with a fellow Brit. So 
just looking on the uh, TBRB top 10, there are actually several other guys from England in the top 10 here. Callum Smith, Anthony Yard, Callum Johnson, all in the top 10, all of whom would be... Well, now that I've said that I, I res- have to start show- showing Craig Richards some respect, maybe it, maybe it would be a little bit of a reach to say that they're all steps up, but they're mm. all at least equal to Richards. Certainly in the case of Callum Smith, that is a, a step up in experience. He's the best known name of these. Is Buatzi ready for it, though? I think mm-hmm. as a fan, if I do that one first... I will say that's the fight that I want to see. Let's let's get a you know a big big crowd there in England for a fight between Boazzi and Callum Smith. Have him take that test. Let's see if he can pass it. I think that's you know gonna you're gonna sell a lot of tickets, and it seems on paper like a pretty competitive matchup right now. Um, if I'm guiding Boazzi's career though, you're t- taking a risk there that you're biting off a little more than you can chew at this point. Um, I mean, Callum Smith has only lost to Canelo Alvarez. So I might look at the next name that I'm seeing in those TBRB rankings among the British fighters. And that's Anthony Yard. Um, that's a little more of a, we got the two prospect slash contender types. Let's pair them against each other. Yard is 30 years old. Um, I think it, It's a fight I'd be interested in as a fan also, but I think more so if I'm guiding Boatze's career, I feel like I would expect him to beat Anthony Yard. I think he's got a few more tools, a little higher upside. So I think that's where I'm going as a matchmaker. It counts as a slight step up from Craig Richards. Um, It's marketable. It's a good test, but not quite as dangerous a test, I think, right now as Callum Smith, which, again, Callum Smith is the one that I might go for as a fan. So those are the ways that I lean. But I could see, actually, Anthony Yard or Callum Smith being the answer to both parts of the question. It's a, it's, it's a thin line between them here. My answer to both was actually Anthony Yard, okay. personally. Um, you know, there there's, I think they've been joined back and forth at each other a little bit and sort of building up that that rivalry. And, and I think the great thing about, you know, these old British fights, you know, there's a lot of places where, you know, domestic contests, they're fine and all, but you're just biding time. British fans are so freaking into boxing and 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 the British media covers it so well that it's like a title fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you, I mean, there was a huge crowd and an excited crowd for Boatsy Richards on, on Saturday night. And you do that again against somebody like Anthony Yard. And it's almost like it's, not only are you sort of gradually moving up in terms of, of the quality of opposition that you're facing, but you're getting a sense of what it is like to be in a big fight night. It's not one of those deals where, you know, you're fighting domestic opposition and then, oops, suddenly you're in a world title fight and it feels different. And, oh, my God, look at the size of this crowd and look at this venue. You've been there and you've done it and, and it's less of a step up. And that's why I think, but I also think, like yourself, Yard, yeah, he's fought at a very high level, but... He's also come up short a couple of times. Mm. He might be out of those, out of the Callums and, uh, and and the other British fighters along there. Probably, I think, an exciting one for fans. I mean, they'll be excited to every, whatever mix and match you come up with. But also probably the right one to move him along. So, yeah, I was thinking about Anthony Yard. The other one who might be interesting, I'm not sure if a matchmaker I'd do it. Somebody else we just mentioned is Jean-Pascal, who's on that sort of 
late career renaissance a little bit. There is a little bit, of, there's some taint there because he failed the PED test right. last year. And you wonder if that and his late career resurgence are entirely unconnected. Hmm. And you might also think, oh, what's the upside of this? There's just downside potential here. But I thought well, that might actually be kind of an intriguing, uh, intriguing kind of crossroads fight. But for me, Anthony Yard leaps out as, as a really good fight to make. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about Pascal, but it actually might be the perfect time to fight him as he's coming off a win. His reputation, beating him means something right, right now, which it might not after his next fight and it wouldn't have after his previous fight. So this might actually be the perfect time to go ahead and, and take a, a fight like that and try to get a former champion's name on your resume. So that one makes sense, but I do still lean toward something something domestic in, in Britain, just having that much more appeal. Indeed. All right, it is time for the news. And in our main event, look, we don't normally do this. We don't normally devote news items to things like pay-per-view sales numbers. But in the case of another light, light heavyweight fight, Canelo Alvarez versus Dimitri Bivol, Numbers are actually noteworthy and perhaps impactful. Uh, Dan Rayfield reported that the May 7th DAZN pay-per-view, DAZN's first attempt at charging a single event fee on top of the standard subscriber rate, generated about 520,000 buys, a huge number for just about any other active fighter other than Canelo, but a surprisingly no, low number for Canelo himself. Uh, his previous fight against Caleb Plan on Showtime pay-per-view did a reported 800,000 buys. Um, there's some speculation that the lower than expected pay-per-view numbers mean that DAZN will push hard for Canelo to fight Gennady Golovkin. That's the fight they've wanted from the very beginning, mm -hmm. from the time that they started out and signed both these guys. And that was the plan before he lost to Bivol, rather than take that Bivol rematch. Eric, do you agree with that logic? And any insights as to why this fight sold so much worse than the planned fight did? I'll answer this, the second part first, because I have a few theories. I, I think there were a variety of factors holding these numbers down a bit. Uh, first of all, DAZN is new to pay-per-view. It, it mm -hmm. doesn't have the marketing machine in place fully. And even though it's Canelo and you shouldn't have to try too hard to make people aware that he's fighting on Cinco de Mayo weekend... I would still imagine there was a little bit less awareness here than with yeah. Showtime and CBS pushing Canelo plan. Second, the whole streaming app thing is an impediment for old school TV yep. viewers. I love apps and streamers. Um, if you have a smart TV, they're so easy to use. But there are people who just don't like figuring it out. They have cable, and that's that. We saw it recently with the ESPN pay-per-view that they forced you to order through the ESPN Plus app, and it definitely hurts sales. Um, so those are factors. Also, this undercard was terrible on paper. Mm -hmm. There was nothing attractive at all. And I do think that matters when people are on the fence about buying it. But the biggest factor, I just think that Canelo's momentum was such that this looked to any casual fan like just another sure thing win for Canelo. They didn't know Bevel. They were feeling like, you know, I've seen it with Plant. I've seen it with Saunders. Yeah. I've seen it with Callum Smith. I mean, there were plenty of big storylines coming out of the fight, but going into it, this fight just had no appeal from a story perspective. Yeah. Everyone thought that they knew the script for this one. So I think that all those things together, that can add up to about 300,000 fewer buys than the yeah. previous outing. So the question of does this low buy rate increase the likelihood that Triple G3 comes next? I guess so, but Canelo Bivol 2 
would definitely sell better than Canelo Bivol 1 did. Now you have a story coming in. Can Canelo get his revenge? Can he beat this guy? He'll probably be a slight underdog. That's a really compelling fight. I would bet that rematch does something like 800,000 buys, maybe even more. But I think on star power and name recognition, Canelo Triple G3 does even more than whatever Canelo Bivol 2 would do. So... The zone probably wants that, you know, fully cash in on that big Triple G contract they signed a few years ago. Plus, I think as time goes on, Canelo is feeling more like, you know what? Let me fight somebody other than Bivol next. Fight at 168, not 175. Get a win or two, then come back to Bivol maybe next year. So Mm. for a combination of reasons, I do think we will see Canelo Triple G3 next. Um, And I should note that no, Canelo losing to Bivol does not much impact my opinion mm. that this could be very ugly for Triple G if he gets the Canelo fight. Mm. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think partly also, I, I don't know how much this made a factor, but the zone's whole marketing from the very beginning was, we're the death of pay-per-view. We'll never do pay-per-view. And then, you know, obviously people in the industry kind of cocked their eyebrows at it. And then... They went ahead and did a pay-per-view, right. uh, and I think that's probably a factor. And then, as we talked about, I think in the in the preview of it, it was the it was up to Canelo to carry it. Bivol, he's a nice dude, but he's not a great salesperson for a fight. After that fight, he's much more of a salesperson because yes. he was really standing up for himself and saying, "Hey, I want a good deal. I'm the champion now." But he was very much the quiet man going into that. Whereas with 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 Plant, we had the shenanigans at the opening press conference, of course, and Caleb can talk a you know a, a, a good talk, and he's continued to be you know motivated by his apparent hatred of you. And um... <laughs> hatred's a little strong. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just yeah. gonna I'll go disdain. He has some disdain for me. There you go. Um, So I I do think, yeah, that's all an element. But yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, I'm with you. Love love uh, uh, apps, love streaming. But yeah, when you're trying to to sell that extra something, having that corporate network TV, cable TV base, that CBS Showtime base, it's just that much easier to make the sale, I think, than it, than it is on DAZN. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought about the first thing that you said, that DAZN was so intent on this idea of we don't do pay-per-view that, I mean, was it is it a huge number that didn't do it out of sort of spite and principle? Probably not, but there's probably a small number, at least, that we're mm-hmm. like, no, on principle... I am not paying DAZN a pay-per-view fee because they're the company that said I would never have to pay a pay-per-view fee. That could be a small factor on top of the ones I listed, yeah. All right, we have a handful of items on our news undercard. Uh, First off, undisputed 140-pound champion Josh Taylor won't be undisputed much longer as one of the Alphabet groups wants him to make a mandatory defense against little-known and unproven Alberto Puello. Taylor chose not to, so that title is being vacated. While Taylor is talking about making a fight that fans actually want to see, another one of his mandatories against legit top contender Jose Chon Zapata. Speaking of fights against little-known and unproven opponents, middleweight Jaime Munguia's next bout will be against British fighter Jimmy Kelly on June 11th. We'd hope to see Claressa Shields versus Savannah Marshall in July, but Marshall needs surgery for an undisclosed injury. So that showdown is pushed back, and it's not clear yet whether Shields will take on someone else in July or stay out of action until a planned MMA fight in the fall. A bit of news ahead of the George Cambosos-Devin Haney fight coming up two weeks from now in Australia. 
Uh, Haney's father and trainer, Bill Haney, has been denied a visa to Australia because of a drug felony on his record from 1992. So instead, Devin will be trained by a different notable boxing father, Yoel Judah, father of Zab Judah. And lastly, Golden Boy Promotions has extended its deal with DAZN. They've renewed their partnership through the end of 2024. Kieran, what would you like to comment on? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'm not entirely sure what the plan is for Jaime Munguia's career at the moment. Like, like, where is it going at this point? Um, you know, four years ago, his people were all set to rush him into a bout with Gennady Golovkin. And, and now, you know, yeah, he's made progress. He's very much improved technically. He's 39-0. and 0. He's got some very good wins. Um, the, the Camille Zaramada win in particular was excellent. And Liam Smith looks even better now after after Liam's recent outing. But, you know, Gabe Rosado was a step down from Zaramada. Demetrius Ballard was perhaps a step down from Rosado. And now Jimmy Kelly looks to be at best a parallel move from Ballard. Granted, middleweight isn't exactly swimming with talent uh you know right below that very top level right now and you know you've got Gennady Golovkin is waiting on Canelo mm-hmm. Jamal Charlo um he's on the other side of the street there isn't an enormous amount to choose from other than that so I'm not sure it just feels like he's in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment yeah. um in contrast good for Josh Taylor for dropping a belt in order to take on only meaningful fights and I love the idea of him against Sean Zapeda although I'm sure Jack Catterall is standing up at the back of the room <laughs> waving his hands and saying hello <laughs> um and it's really a bit of a suboptimal situation for Devin Haney uh, his dad had said I think during the Saturday's ESPN telecast that he hadn't entirely given up I think on being able to make it or at least finding a way to communicate with the corner during the fight from Las Vegas um Haney will also be without I believe Ben Davison who has right. been working in his corner late of the MTK Performance Academy, who is experiencing visa issues of his own. Um, so that's probably not an ideal situation for him there at all. I, I'm not sure how much it will impact him or not, but yeah, you got to figure a couple of weeks out. That's probably not an ideal situation. No, and uh, one other person who will definitely not be uh, working Haney's corner is Novak Djokovic. He's another one, not, uh, not, <laughs> not getting in, into Australia for this one. That's right, exactly. All right. To conclude, it is top five challenge time uh, next week. As we have discussed already at some length on this here very podcast, Javante Davis and Orlando Romero will headline a pay-per-view card at Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. And it will be the 40th boxing card staged at that venue since it opened a little over 10 years or so ago. So your task for next week. You have 39 cards from which to pick. Pick out the five best fights from those cards. There are plenty from which to choose. I actually went through briefly uh, most of the cards in preparation for this just to make sure there there were enough. And and there are. Um, You won't be as spoiled for choice as you would be if this was a Home Depot, StubHub, Dignity Health Right. Ooh, but there are some. That's that's a good idea for a list to assign it, you at some it, point. It, okay. It is indeed. For you to assign me, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, the definition of the best fight entirely up to you, right? So it, they can be back and forth slobber knockers. They could be one-sided drubbings that created a buzz and memorable, memeable moments, if you will. Um, fights that were truly significant and newsworthy. Fights that involved big stars. Up to you, your call. There are some choices to be made there. There are there are some fights to pick there. Okay, I, I like that. And this uh, next week's podcast will get huge download numbers in Brooklyn specifically. <laughs> That's right, very much. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Uh We will be back next week, but... 
one day later than usual, as it is the long Memorial Day weekend, and Eric is traveling. Oh, honestly, podcasters who travel when they're supposed to be. I can, honestly. Um, when are you coming home from Alaska? In a couple of days. <laughs> um, so look for our next episode with post-fight analysis of Tank vs. Raleigh and previews of a big fight week, including Stephen Fulton against Danny Roman and George Campos' versus Devin Haney on Tuesday of next week. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.